Open up to the book of Luke. Enjoy it. We're going to take a little break from, uh, from Luke uh, for a couple of weeks. So let's soak up the last of, uh, of Luke 9 here today. Um, and let's try to take a little bit of a running start. Just in your mind, remember where we've been. Last week, I just have, I got to tell you, some, some passages are so much fun to, to preach. I don't feel like I, I should do it. We should just read it seven times and call it, a, call it a Sunday. But the Transfiguration is one of those passages. Last week, we got to just get a glimpse of Jesus and all of his glory. And then on Wednesday night, we got to spend some time just going, so what on earth was that? That was so awesome. What exactly was happening there? And how can we spend time beholding him? How can we make not all of the things around us the focus of our attention, but how can we live our lives just in awe of the majesty of Jesus? And that's where these disciples, as they come down the mountain with him, are they're just locked up in the awe of Jesus, Peter, James, and John. And you remember, then they came down and found that the rest of the disciples were having a much different experience. The rest of the disciples are trying to figure out what to do with this this young man who is apparently both ill and uh, oppressed by a demon, and they're just getting nowhere. Jesus looks out on the culture and goes, not that he's mad at his disciples, but he just is heartbroken over um, over the, the culture, this idolatrous culture. And we talked about how Luke and his just incredible ability to tell a story is just causing us to think about Moses coming down also with shining face and in the presence of God coming down and finding out that the people, instead of down there thanking God for being released from Egypt, are instead down there pretending that magical golden calves popped out of fires so they could worship them. <clears throat> so this is where we find ourselves as the, and you notice that it's, it's sort of a, a, strange, um, a strange verse just in our translation. Like there's no numbers and chapters and all of that kind of thing in, uh, <clears throat> in, the, in the original writings. And, and, and whoever figured out where these breaks should go, some, you know, monk 500 years ago or something, um, kind of put this break in a little bit of a strange spot. Um, in, in verse 43, you see, or I'm sorry, I have to put glasses on today. Yeah, 43, and all were astonished at the majesty of God. And that kind of stops the story, but the verse continues. And maybe it should just keep going because while this is kind of two separate thoughts, it's also kind of both of these thoughts we kind of live with every day. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling um, at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed for them, um, so they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about that. So just as we get into a discussion about what it means to be great in the kingdom of God, man, I don't, <clears throat> I don't think it's going to be earth-shattering, brand-new news for most of you if I say what it means to be great in the kingdom of God is to be the servant of all. You were told that like every time you wanted the Legos that the other kid wanted and your Sunday school teachers are trying to keep peace in Sunday school and you're like, hey, be a servant of all, then Jesus loves you. Like, um, Jesus loves you anyway. Even the mean kid with the Legos, Jesus loves that kid too. But the Sunday school teacher can't tell you that. She's got to keep peace. <laughs> but this is where the disciples are ready to hear what the mission is going to be about. 
This is when they come to a point where Jesus can lay out what it really means to be his follower. When they are both in awe of who he is and also really know the darkness in the world. They're in awe of what they've seen. They, are, they have heard Jesus say um, a, the, a commentary on the generation that they're in. And then Jesus says for the second time, hey, this is all leading to the cross. And in the middle of their time on the road with Jesus, actually kind of the beginning of their time on the road, this journey from Galilee down to Jerusalem, the first step of that is their misunderstanding. They're not really understanding. It's veiled to them. Servant of all. It's not a surprise. That's the goal. I kind of want to ask you this several times this morning as I go. Is that your goal? Is that my goal? Like, it's one thing for all of us to know that the Bible says humility is important and to be great in the kingdom, you have to be the servant of everyone. That it's not a very smart argument for these guys to be arguing about who's the greatest in the kingdom. Those silly disciples, they're at it again. What is our goal? What is our goal as a church? What is your goal as a family? What is your goal as a person? Because it's very easy to make the same mistake that these disciples are making. And to see Jesus and to see the culture and to know it's about following him. And then something, because something is concealed to us, still makes us argue for our own greatness. I'm so good at being humble. (laughs) Seriously, I'm fantastic. I'm not surprised by Jesus' call to be the servant of all. What I am surprised by, as I think carefully about this passage, is why the disciples would have these conversations at all. I mean, on one hand, I guess I get it. They feel like they're on the way down to Jerusalem to overthrow Rome, so they're setting up a government, right? They're like, hey, we're going to go down. Jesus is going to do his thing. We just got a glimpse. Like, it's on. Jesus gets to the temple, you're going to see some stuff happen. It's going to be great. And when he like inaugurates the earthly reign right now, we need to figure out who's the second in charge. And, you know, I don't want to be like secretary of the interior. I want to be like the vice president, man. Like I want, I, I think I'm worth it. I think I can do it. Jesus has counted on me for other things in the past. So <clears throat> I'm sorry to whoever is the secretary of the interior. I have no idea. Um, um, But when I think about who these guys were and and where they came from, you think any discussion of their greatness is kind of silly. These were not. I think of even Paul's writings to the Corinthians. As the Corinthians are fighting and have division, he goes, do you remember that you guys were a bunch of jokers when Jesus found you? Not many were of noble birth. Not many were wise in this world. When I think about these common fishermen who... Just got called out of nothing to follow Jesus, and and everything they've done has been all about Jesus, and and there's been no profound word from any of these guys yet, except Peter, who goes, "You're the Christ of God." I think that that's the right answer. Like there, these people have not led anybody, and yet here they are arguing for their own greatness. On the other hand, they weren't just fishermen anymore, were they? I don't know how long they had been traveling in Galilee with Jesus, but it had been some time. And they had been a part of some really amazing moments, and they had done some really wonderful things. And 
it makes me think about myself. Would it be possible for me to think about my own change in Christ? Like, I am not the goofball I was. I'm an entirely different goofball. And I, I don't make the same mistakes I used to make. And God has grown me in really amazing ways. Sins that I thought would be part of my life forever are just not that big a deal anymore, you know? Like, I'm, I'm forgiving in ways that I didn't think I could be. Like, I have over 48 years, Christ is being formed in me. I'm not at the end of the journey, but I see growth in me. And that's pretty spectacular. Can I look at my own growth and, and move is it, would it be possible in my own weakness to, to move in that direction from knowing that I am meant to be a servant to wondering just how great I am? Is that not a common thing that a Christian might fall into? I'm talking about other people at other churches. Is it something where you might start to be so impressed with how Christ is being formed in you that you start to feel a little superior to your fellow man? You start to be that Pharisee going, God, at least I'm not him. I don't know about you, but I need regularly to be reminded what it means to be great in the kingdom. Let me tell you, let me say it this way. I need to be reminded what it means to be great in the kingdom that I actually care about. Because if you pin me down and go, Grant, do you care about the kingdom of man? Do you care about making a name for yourself? <laughs> not at all. And yet, while that Response is conditioned in me. Do you want to be famous? Do you want to be powerful? Do you want your name to be remembered for generations? No, less of me, more of him. And yet, even though I know that, it is the easiest thing for a little bit of self-righteous pride to work its way into my life to where I can say, no, I don't want to be great in man's eyes, but thank goodness I'm not that guy. One of my favorite quotes um, is a misquote, as most of my favorite quotes are, um, but I think it contains great wisdom for every Christian. It's, it's from a German reformer in the 1700s. His name was Nicholas uh, Zinzendorf, and I practice saying that name. And the, the quote that is common is, I want to uh, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. That's what I want. I want to preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Is that what you want? So um, this is the fuller quote, what he might have, maybe he said this. He said, remember, you must never use your position to lord it over the heathen. Instead, you must humble yourself and earn their respect through your own quiet faith. Not silent faith, but simple faith. Not the opposite of public faith, but the opposite of obnoxious faith. Earn their respect through your own quiet faith and the power of the Holy Spirit. The missionary, which is every single one of us, must seek nothing for himself, no seat of honor, no hope of fame. Like the cab horse in London, each of you must wear blinkers that, bind you to every, that blind you to every danger and to every snare and conceit. You must be content to suffer, to die, and be forgotten." Preach the gospel, die and be forgotten. That inspires me. And that's what I want in my life. That is, do you want that? But here's the question, is that what you really want? It's pretty easy on a Sunday morning to go, ah, it's all about you, less of me, more of you. 
And then some doofus at work says something, and all of a sudden, it kind of feels like it's about me again. I work here. In this passage, there is a road laid out for us to greatness in the kingdom of God. There's a road laid out for us for humility, a road laid out for us to be the servant of all, a road laid out for us that we might walk like Jesus walked. But before we talk about that, we need to ask ourselves if that's what we actually want. Because if what we actually want is our own greatness, well, then this is either a waste of our time to study this passage, or all it's going to do is build into us more self-righteousness, where we can look at it and go, yep, that's me all over. Is that what you really want? What's in the way of discipleship? What's in the way for the disciples? What's the enemy of greatness in the kingdom? James Edwards said this, I love this quote, he said that what is in the way of our becoming the servant of all, of our becoming great in the kingdom of God, is the aloofness and arrogance that comes with being pretty good. The aloofness and arrogance that comes with being pretty good. I think it was James Edwards that also that said, over time, we tend to feel like we are God's advisors instead of his servant. And when you think about it, advisors and servants look a lot alike. They both hang out in the throne room. They both might have a great friendly relationship with the king. But advisors are at all times judging. Advisors are judging situations. Advisors are judging everyone else that comes into the throne room. Advisors are judging eventually even the king himself. Hey, king, this is what I think your move should be. And if you are here to tell me that we have never prayed a prayer, God, here's what I think your move should be, well, keep reading. Servants, on the other hand, are at all times not evaluating judging, but rather attentive to the king. That's a totally different role. They might be standing right next to each other, but it's a different role. Even the most trusted servants, there's no judging, there is only obedience If the king says, bring dinner for me and my guests, the servant does not go, that guy, but not that guy. I heard this guy say something bad about the king. The king doesn't know it, but I'm not bringing dinner to that guy. No, he just obeys, just does it, because he's a servant, not an advisor. If the king says, hey, carry these bags and get the room set up for my guests, the servant doesn't go, well, I need to see some credentials first. I need to know if they really belong here. Just obeys. Do you remember screw tape letters? You know, I always say, I, I even stole this line from Tim Keller, but I always say, if, I, if I'm prepared, I quote a lot of people. If I'm not prepared, I quote C.S. Lewis. <clears throat> and in screw tape, the, it's the story of a, a couple of demons having, le- sending letters back and forth and trying to keep a man out of the kingdom of God. And there comes a point where the man gets saved. He enters the kingdom of God. And the advice from the senior demon to the lesser demon who, is, who has the, this man as his patient, he says, hey, all is not lost. Be sure to keep the patient's attention on how good he is becoming. 
I'm, I'm really sorry. <laughs> of course, pride that leads to theft and abuse is wrong. But so is the pride that leads to arrogance and legalism and self-righteousness. I'd like you to note our Savior's attitude in this passage. How would you have come down from the Mount of Transfiguration if you were Jesus? I would have strut. It would have been an end zone dance. I would have been like, and you know what? All you dokers, like, do you know who I am? Yet he's only really asked that of Peter. And instead he comes down and and he sees the generation, the generation he's in for what it really is, but his eyes are on the job. His heart is full of mercy and his eyes are on the job that lies ahead of him. His eyes are on the cross. Instead of coming down the mountain with words of self-promotion, Jesus' words are of grief over the rebellious culture. And there's a fine line between grieving over a rebellious culture and judgment over a rebellious culture, isn't there? And his instructions are about the suffering that he will endure to save the people in that same culture. Jesus doesn't look at the culture and go, this rebellious culture even says, like, how much longer can I put up with you? And yet, the very next thing is him talking about how he will be the savior of this same culture. Jesus sees the culture for what it is, but his heart's full of mercy. I mean, one more question. What would we do to save the people in our culture? I hear an awful lot about how we need to change the world, change the culture. I, I read less about how we might do whatever it takes to save our neighbors. To just with humble hearts and quiet and sincere faith, let our good deeds shine before the Gentiles that they might honor our Father in heaven. Jesus loves sinners and calls us to do the same. Jesus served undeserving people and calls us to do the same. Um, what it means to be great in the kingdom of God is exactly that, to serve people who don't deserve it, to love the unlovable. I love how this passage started by Jesus saying, let this sink into your ears. A lighthouse, let's let this sink into our ears. The Son of Man will be your servant, even unto the cross. Let that sink into your ears. And I wonder if what that means by sink into your ears is not just hear it, not just understand it, but let it sink in so deeply that you reflect it. That that is not only that you say, Jesus, I am fully willing for you to suffer and die for me, but I am unwilling to suffer for anybody else, but rather that we would say, how might we? It is so sunk into my ears that it's popping out my pores. So that's the goal. How do we get there? Let's talk about the road. Um, this, is a, this, this passage kind of starts the section where Jesus is on the road with his disciples down to Jerusalem, and it's a few chapters long, and there's just great advice on the road. I wish Luke said it more. Hey, they're still on the road. This is happening on the road. But I don't know if you've ever been on a long walk with somebody, especially somebody that you appreciate, somebody that you admire, but you can learn something on a walk like that. 
And this is, these are the kind of things that the disciples are, are here to learn. So let's look at kind of the road markers that are marked out. And remember, this is not the road to being a Pharisee. This is not the road to being a good church person. This is the road to, if you want to be servant of all, you don't just go, okay, got it, and leave. No, you go, how would we do that? I have, there's nothing in me that's wired to serve everyone. I am only wired to serve myself. Self-promotion is how I was born. If I'm going to be different, teach me how. So Jesus teaches them how. First of all, he says, uh, let's look at 46 to 48. He says, an argument among them rose to which was the greatest, but Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their heart, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me, for, it is, uh, for he who is least among you is the one who will be great. I think this is how this breaks down. Jesus says, if you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, if you want the kind of character he's talking about, that you spend time and energy on those who have needs but can't benefit you at all. There's no reward for you. There's needs. Do you know categories of people that are just kind of a black hole of energy? I'm all for setting boundaries, by the way. I don't like these. Everyone you know has a savior. Every child in our children's ministry, they have a savior. It's not you. And at the same time, Jesus pulls a child beside him. And in a culture where this was the only thing that's really true about a culture. Have you ever heard preachers? And I've, I've been guilty. Have you ever heard preachers kind of fumble around trying to figure out what's so special about a child and why we need to receive them? You go, well, children aren't to the age of of accountability yet. So there's still, you know, that's not what Jesus meant. Children are innocent. Have you ever met a child? Nothing innocent about a child. No, rather, it's that children are no benefit to you personally at all, especially if they're not in your family. You could not hear one thing that is going on in children's ministry today and be just fine. It's a lot of stuff about goldfish crackers. The Talmud, this Jewish instruction in the Talmud said that spending time with children was a waste of time. Now, we don't really feel like that. We, we might feel like spending time with other people's children is a waste of time. But you can at least understand what Jesus is talking about. That there are categories of people that we look at that and go, what a waste and Jesus goes, oh, yeah, servant of all, humble. Yep, totally. Poured out like a drink offering, dude. Like, this is how you get great in the kingdom of God. This is how to walk the road, is to find the people that cannot benefit you at all and serve them. On, on Wednesday night, we'll kick this passage around a little bit, and we'll go, what's it mean to receive? What does it mean to really receive somebody? Is it not welcome? Is it not down on their level? Is it not to, to make them feel like they're important? And then a child, who is this child? What does this mean? You know, <clears throat> the Talmud said that spending time with a child was a waste of time, especially for a man. I know, I didn't write it. So that's what you do. You find people that have needs that can't benefit you and you serve them. Not because they deserve it, 
Not because they've earned it, because they never will. But you serve them because they can't serve you back. Then 49 through 50. Let's read that again. And John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out... Oh, John. Poor John. John wrote 1 John. Is that not amazing? Like all that love and stuff? Like same guy. Um, John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. Check out the pronoun, with us. Um, But Jesus said to him, do not stop him for the one who is not against you is for you. So not only do you spend energy on time on people that there's no reward coming back, but also you have to be comfortable with, uh, this is not very well said, but I couldn't think of another way to put it, with an uncomfortable inclusion. See, John sees his role as a disciple, as a gatekeeper, not a servant, as an advisor. Jesus, just so you know, found some joker doing stuff in your name, happy to shut him down for you. That is not a ministry Jesus has asked John to participate in. In fact, there are things that he has empowered John to participate in. John, he sent him out with the power to to heal and to cast out demons. And John was like, I'm so good at that, I'll also figure out who shouldn't be here. There's no indication that this other man is preaching a false version of Jesus. I wonder if the disciples might even have their feelings hurt a little bit. Do you remember what they were just unable to do? Is cast out a demon from this boy. And now there's some guy just wrecking shop, just like casting out demons right and left in Jesus' name. And John goes, well, this, if, I, if we were having trouble, this guy obviously shouldn't be doing it. Turn, your, turn in your Bibles over to, to chapter 11 uh, of John or of Luke. I'm sorry, just one page over and, uh, in verse 23. Hope I wrote that down right. Yeah. Jesus here says, so whoever is, uh, is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Well, that feels opposite, right? And one party's like, uh, whoever is not... Um, against you is with us, but uh, then over here he says, whoever is not with me is against me. But do you see the pronoun change? John, it's not about being with you. It's not about being with us. It's about being with me. In chapter nine, John's complaint is this other guy isn't with us. Jesus, I found a guy doing great work, but he's in the wrong denomination. (laughs) we cannot let those Pentecostals worship Jesus. By the way, around here, we're Bapticostals. That's how we roll. Love the scriptures, do everything we can with the, the, uh, everything we do is Holy Spirit inspired and filled. Chapter 11, Jesus warns against people not with me, with him. And those are pretty easy to confuse. It's pretty easy for us to look at other people and go, well, if you're not with me, you're obviously not with Jesus. Can you just imagine Jesus going, oh, come on, man. <laughs> what are you talking about? Somebody doesn't agree with you, so you think he doesn't agree with me? Anybody think they're right on every topic? Anybody think that your entrance into heaven is going to be, hey, hey, hey stop it. He's finally here. the one who got it all right, all hail. I think rather it's going to be me going, 
Oh, <laughs> I, uh, I'm sorry that I was wrong about a few things. Humble, servant of all. We aren't gatekeepers, we're servants. We aren't advisors, we're servants. This is an argument for high Christology and an inclusive ecclesiology. To put the person of Jesus and who he really is. We do not compromise on who Jesus is. We know him. We pursue him. We know about him. We study him. He is the one that we get his character as right as we can. That is the doctrine we care most about. And we care a lot about it. And then we look at other people in the world who love Jesus but do it differently than we do. And we go, praise the Lord. Inclusive in ecclesiology, inclusive in love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. High view of Jesus. I think around here, I like to say it this way. We take Jesus very seriously. We don't take ourselves that seriously. And it's really easy to flip that. To not take Jesus very seriously, but take our own opinions pretty seriously. Verse 51 has special insight as Jesus teaches this lack of judgment of others that would follow um, Jesus, but who do it differently. And in verse 51, he says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. It's almost like Luke wants to communicate, guys, the time is so short. In times when our world is kind of topsy-turvy, there's always a, a group of Christians who go, this is a sign of the end times. What boggles my mind is how they have any fear in that. I'm like, I don't think this is a sign of the end times, but if it is, sweet. Let's do it. I want to go to heaven. You want to go to heaven? I want to go to heaven. Let's go. That would be okay. But time is at least one day shorter than it was yesterday. And there are some times when it feels like time is so short. And you know, I'll even tell you, in a culture like ours, like we are in a transient culture. How many people do you know who have left the state in the last two years? Did you have time to share the word with them? Did you have time to tell them about Jesus? It's almost like Jesus is like, I don't have time to worry about the guy casting out demons in my name who seems like he's doing everything just fine, but he doesn't hang out with you, John. My face is set towards Jerusalem. And maybe you and I need to have that same attitude where we go, there's this controversy and that controversy. Don't. And you know what? I love a good theological argument. Let's do it. I am in. But do you hear Jesus going, we're not going to worry about that guy. We're going to Jerusalem to solve the sin of all mankind. We're going to reverse the curse, and then you're going to send out, be sent out into all the world to tell people about it. Let's not get bogged down in this controversy or that controversy. There might be Christians who do things differently than we do. But far more important than that, there are people outside the kingdom. And me bickering with other Christians about how to be the best Christian is not doing anything except making Jesus seem unattractive to the lost. Are you with me? So this third marker on the road to being a humble servant, verse 51 uh, through 56, let me read it again. 
And when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went uh, and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. So he has sent people ahead. The band is growing. There's kind of a lot of people with him. So they need to go ahead and try to find some place to sit, stay, um, you know, rally some groceries, stuff like that. But the people did not receive him. So there again is the word received, just like we're supposed to receive this child. They are not received into this village. Um, the people did not receive him because um, his face was set towards Jerusalem. So the mission he's on is what disqualifies him from hanging out uh, in the Samaritan village. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, hey, Jesus, would you like us? Do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven? And consume them, but he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. The third marker in how to be great in the kingdom of God is mercy and hope. So far, we've seen how Jesus wants us to treat those that can't benefit us, but there's nothing sinful about a child. There's nothing, I mean, tons, but um, it, it's not like this child is telling you, Jesus is not the way, the truth, and the life. I'm four and an atheist. Like, that's not, there's no, that's not what's happening, rarely. And he's also given us instruction on how we should treat people who are with him, but not in our particular tribe. But now our attention is drawn to those who flat out reject Jesus entirely. And at first, it sounds to us like James and John have lost their mind. Truly, these are the sons of thunder. We don't have anybody who will give us a place to stay. Jesus, should we burn down the village? <laughs> what are you, Batman? No. But then again, we've talked many times about how Luke really puts the ministry of Elijah as the backdrop for the ministry of Jesus, and, and Elijah had called down fire in judgment. And not only that, We've talked a lot about the eschatological piece to this, the end times piece, this, that Jesus is setting up the eternal kingdom here. The kingdom that Jesus is setting up as he goes to Jerusalem, that's the kingdom I'm in right now, that I will be forever. And in that eternal kingdom that will include somebody from the line of David, that will include the, the, all the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament, there's tons of imagery of fire, of judgment, that, that, uh, that is associated with judgment as the kingdom is being set up. So maybe James and John are not so far off. Maybe James and John are just thinking, it's go time. Jesus is going to set up the kingdom. It's clobbering time. <laughs> let's, let's set it up. Let's do it. Now's the time. Jesus, do you want to start judgment right now? And let's be clear. Jesus thinks that's a terrible idea. And if we might ever have similar ideas, let's be clear, Jesus thinks that's a terrible idea. There are a few things that James and John don't understand, and I'll try to get through them quickly. But first of all, they don't understand Jesus. Jesus came not to be the Jewish Savior only, but to fulfill the ultimate messianic prophecy that the nations would once again have access to God. And I want to point out that the same guy, John, who's like, Samaritan, burn him. They're going to burn anyway. You want us to do it right now? He's the same guy who wrote the book of Revelation. And in Revelation, in the new heaven and new earth, in this new Jerusalem, all the nations are walking by the light of God. But John doesn't understand this yet. He doesn't understand how much Jesus loves the whole world. Think of somebody you don't like. Jesus loves them. 
I tell my students this all the time. You are allowed to hate exactly everybody that Jesus hates. And as far as I can tell, the only people Jesus hates are the proud. <laughs> or opposes, not hates. Not only do they not understand Jesus, but they don't understand the kingdom of God. Again, we are servants. We are the proclaimers of the kingdom. We are not the judges. We have received mercy. We don't call down fire. Are you with me? We don't stand in judgment. We just got acquitted. We are the ones that deserve the fire to be called down that God has, has sent mercy upon us. How silly would it be for us to go, whew, we dodged the flames. Do you want me to burn somebody? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Because you're either in or you're not. You either live in the world where God has forgiven you, and so you forgive everyone no matter what, or you live in the world where we keep score. You can't have it both ways. You don't go, yes to my mercy, yes to my forgiveness, no to his. Doesn't work. Blessed are the merciful. John's still figuring this out. We do not prove that we understand the grace and mercy of God as we talk about how our sins are on the cross. And that's a pretty common Christian-y thing to do, and I think it's a good thing to do, that we talk about, hey, you are a sinner and your sins are on the cross. But that's not how we ultimately prove that we understand the grace and mercy of God. We prove that we understand the grace and mercy of God as we say, I have been sinned against. Some of us sinned against terribly. Some of us sinned against repeatedly, and those sins are on the cross. Not only do they not understand the kingdom, they not, don't understand Jesus, they don't understand the Samaritans. God has big plans for the Samaritans. John looks at him and goes, useless, ridiculous. We'll ask on Wednesday, hey, what do you guys know about the Samaritans? So go look it up and you'll sound super smart in Bible study on Wednesday. Um, but John is fully convinced that the Samaritans have no place in the kingdom of God. It's burned now or burned later. But in Acts 8, Philip is going to preach the gospel in Samaria, and it says that the people with one accord paid attention and believed, and that it brought great joy to the region. John just sees their rejection today, but Jesus has his eye on their redemption later. And it could be that the people that we would really like to cast fire down on, God's got a plan. They're not going to say yes today. They'll reject the gospel today, but maybe they won't reject it forever. And it's certainly not for us to make that decision. Not only is God merciful to those who reject him, but it just might be that we haven't seen the end of that story. Okay, so let's review. And I would say that all of these lessons about following Jesus on the road, all of these about how we might become the servant of God are exactly the opposite of earthly wisdom. I would say if you sat down with somebody who doesn't know the Lord and you said, hey, how do I make my life? How do I like make my way in the world? He might say the exact opposite of all these things. One, focus your time and help those who can't be a benefit to you. You go, God, that's terrible advice. Well, not if your goal is to be the servant of all. Two, don't waste time arguing with people who are in other camps. Instead, Celebrate that Jesus is being celebrated in all kinds of ways that don't make sense to you. 
Third, show mercy and have hope of salvation of those that out and out reject us and our mission of Jesus, our message of Jesus. So you can see why this section ends with a discussion about what it costs. I don't have time to preach this whole thing, so let me just do it very briefly. But this is probably not the life you were dreaming of in junior high. All right? Junior high. You were probably not like, what are you going to be when you grow up? I'm just going to spend my time with people who can't benefit me at all. I'm going to let everybody else think they're right. Even when I think they're wrong, I'm just going to celebrate Jesus. When people reject me, I'm going to show them mercy. That costs something, and let's not pretend it doesn't. There's real world pain associated with following Jesus in these ways. So it ends, this section ends with these three quick stories. As they were going along the road, someone said, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds have air, have the air, uh, birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. This is not some people have said this is a call to poverty. It's not a call to poverty. It's just a call to not fit in in the world. If you're going to follow Jesus, you're not going to feel like you fit in in the world. Because the world has a completely different ethic. The world has completely different... In the world, the big dog wins, and it's the smart, pretty one who gets all the stuff. The kingdom of God is completely opposite. Jesus, I will follow you. Will, will you feel like you never really fit in? Well, you have that broken heart that says, man, I long for a place where I belong. And then listen to Switchfoot songs that remind us that there is a place where we belong someday. If you're looking to fit in in this world, the kingdom of God might not be for you. Jesus is like, man, even the birds have nests. Even the foxes have holes. If you follow me, you're never going to feel like an insider. You're never going to feel like you fit. Verse 59. And to another, he said, follow me. Interesting, this one, Jesus is the one calling him. And we've seen Jesus call and people drop their nets and leave their tax collector booth and all that. But, but this guy doesn't do this. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. There's more meat on those bones than I have time to talk about today. But, but it comes down to this. The, the Jewish understanding about death rituals was so foundational to their culture. Jesus, you know the rules. I can't follow you. There are strict like Jewish law and passed down by the rabbis. There's a, I got to follow this religious system. And Jesus is really looking at him and go, would you please abandon the old religious system and just follow me? Following Jesus will cost you your primary allegiance to previous religious understanding, to the customs that you're comfortable with. We will still be Americans. We will pray for America, and we will say, God, thank you for giving us countrymen to pray for and to serve. But we will say, I'm a citizen of the kingdom of God. I don't really fit in here. And not only that, like the all these customs that were passed down to me, they don't, they're like a shirt that doesn't quite fit right anymore. Instead, I'm going to leave those behind. 
Let the dead bury their dead. Let the spiritual dead bury their physical dead. And you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. That's a different mission. And then lastly, verse 61 and 62, I think. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Again, hearkening back to Elijah, Elijah did let Elisha go back and say goodbye to his parents. This sounds like he's got an Old Testament verse to cling to. But Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow looks, uh, and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. You know, in, in first century, like what you did for a living and who your family was are the same thing. It's going to cost you your allegiance to your family, and it's going to cost you your allegiance to your work. You're not going to find your identity in your last name. You're not going to find your identity in your work. I played one year of college tennis. I was a pretty good high school tennis player. I know, for those of you that, that haven't heard my whole life story, you look at me and you go, tennis. Um, yeah, I know, I know. Doubles, just up and back, no side to side. Um, I was a pretty good high school tennis player, and I played one year of junior college. Back then, we called it JUCO tennis. And I was okay, but I, I wasn't as good as I was in high school. Like, the competition got a lot better. And I looked and I saw what it was going to take to, like, get to that next level as a tennis player. And I just went, I'm just not willing. You know, the, the used record store is on the way to practice, and I just can't get there. You know, like, I'm just stopping at the used record store all the time. And, and I just saw the commitment. I saw the, you know, the, the diet and the exercise. And the, and the, the coach was kind of a jerk. I, and, and, you know, all of that stuff, I saw what it was going to take. I just went, it's not worth the cost. I started a band when I was 20 years old. For eight years, I was in a, I was in a rock band, and we got pretty good. And it was, it was fun. I love those men. I still love those men. Joe, if you're watching, I owe you a phone call. Thanks for calling the other day. Um, um, I, I love those guys, and, and we, we loved being in a band together. And we started as a punk band because we only knew three chords, and that's what punk bands are. But then we grew, and it was like we got better and better, you know? And I, I learned to sing a little bit, and I learned to write better songs and all that but we started getting married and we started having kids and our careers kind of took different, you know, I, like the ministry thing kind of settled in. I felt like I want to be a pastor. I just looked at the cost, just kind of went, ah, I'm not a musician. I'm a dad. That's what I want to be. I want to be a husband. I want to be a pastor. I like dodgeball. But in the kingdom of God, I have found the treasure that I've been looking for my whole life, the pearl of great price that I will give anything for, no matter what it costs. And I think I mean that. And I don't know, because it hasn't, it hasn't cost me everything, and it might not for our whole lives. But as Jesus lays out what it means to really follow him, it can't be commitment like it was to college tennis. And it can't be commitment like it was to being a musician. It has to be everything, all the time. Not to be the servant of some, and not to be the servant of most, but to be the servant of all. 